Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. I'm one of your hosts, Jonathan Rosen, along with Ike Eisenman. And for the first time ever, we have a repeat guest. And it's nothing that we did, I think, but but welcome back, Dean Hagwin. Dean, thanks so much for joining us again. Great to be here. It's a it's a funny story why I'm back, isn't it? I yes. Mean, <laughs> you interviewed Paul Williams. I told you, oh, you had to have asked him. Well, let me, let me introduce, me. let me tell you what we're talking about first. Okay, here, we're, we're doing an edition of Forgotten Films, right. And today we're going to do Phantom of the Paradise, starring Paul Williams and Jessica Harper. Yeah. And who, right, and who is the other? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a friend from, uh, brought, directed by Brian De Palma. It Brian De Palma, right. a friend from university who went on to do some other things, but basically he wasn't an actor. He was just like- oh, really? Yeah, yeah, he wasn't in the acting program at the university, he was in some other program, but then he got cast as uh, as Winslow Leach, the Phantom. And <laughs> well, yeah, his well, but, well, like you were just starting to say, when you were on, you criticized us for Paul Williams was on for not for not mentioning Phantom of the Paradise, and we just, we had only so much time. And the funny thing is, I'm going to take it to you in a second, but the funny thing is, we just interviewed Radimus Para from uh, Kung Fu. We just oh, yeah. and he is such a big fan of this movie as well. <laughs> yeah, it was like, wow, that came out of nowhere. But uh, I'm telling you, it's got a cult following. I take it you guys have watched it for the yes. preparation of this episode. A hundred percent, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, I would, I, I could, I couldn't participate if I hadn't consumed it. There's just no now way. My question is, did you watch it twice? I did not have time to watch it twice, but I'm going to comment about that in a minute. So here's what I'm going to do. What what really generated the idea for the show was, yes, when you brought it up in our interview with you, and then you went on so effusively and passionately in your synopsis and your reaction to it. And when I was cutting your show, I said, this isn't about him. I can't leave all this material in here. And I thought, but man, what a great idea. We should do that, you know, do our Forgotten Films episode and and bring you back on if you wanted to tell more stories about it, which I can't wait to hear. Yeah. So what I'm going to say is right now, you don't have to do your synopsis again. I still have that video. Oh, you do? Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to cut it in literally right <laughs> now. The major cultural touchstone from a kid from Winnipeg was this movie called Phantom of the Paradise, a story about, and he was in it, he was acting in it. So he played Swan, who was this record mogul who had sold his soul to the devil to stay young forever. And he was opening his brand new rock opera of showcase house called The Paradise. And uh, he wanted this young man who was uh, uh, singing in the audition room down in the uh, lobby. He goes, that guy, that guy there, he's going to write all the music for my opening opus. And then uh, 
they uh, make him uh, go and he steals all his music and then puts uh, drugs on him and he's framed and sent to Sing Sing where they pull out his teeth and put all these silver teeth in. And he has to press albums in the Sing Sing prison of his music that swan Paul Williams has stolen from him. Enraged, he runs and his sleeve gets stuck in the record press and his face gets stuck and his own music is pressed on his face and half blinded, he falls in the ocean and, and crawls back to the paradise where Swan recognizes him and gives him a, a, a chrome uh, bird-like mask and some reason finds a perfectly fitted leather bodysuit. And then a, because his vocal cords are all destroyed, he gets an electronic voice box that he can, and then he has this really cool voice and he writes the rest of the music and he falls in love with an actress who has to sing his songs. No one else can sing my songs or they die. And sure enough, someone else sings the songs and he throws a neon lightning bolt and kills Beef right on the opening night. And oh, he's electrocuted and the crowd goes wild. And then he, you know, it goes on from there. It's wow. okay, boom. Now, now. <laughs> I'm I'm exhausted just hearing that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't think I don't think I could do a synopsis that uh, that extensive on Escape to Witch Mountain. I mean, my <laughs> God. Yeah. <laughs> so I also have the original soundtrack album. This is purchased. That's amazing to me that you have that. <laughs> yeah. Not only I, but uh, fifty thousand other Winnipeggers also have yes. this. Same <laughs> I was album, reading that, which, which made it a gold album. That's how popular. So not only was the movie a hit for two and a half years, sold out. the The album itself became went to gold record status in Canada at fifty thousand. <laughs> And Paul Williams then came to Winnipeg and performed two nights at a sold out at the Playhouse Theater, uh, doing <laughs> the songs from Phantom of the Paradise. The only city, I thought he was on tour, you know, promoting the movie. Apparently he just got on a plane, came straight to Winnipeg and did that because the movie blew up in Winnipeg in the seventies, like no other movie. <laughs> to my mind, the biggest movies of my childhood, Star Wars, E.T. Phantom of the Paradise, like the Holy like, Trinity, the Holy Trinity of epic cinema. Well, I when that when the film came out, of course, I was that was seventy four, so yeah. I'm twelve years old, and yeah. I'm looking I'm looking at the posters and the trailers and the, and all of that, and I just said I can't go. This is just too stupid. I can't I can't do this. I can't do it, and it. And it wasn't that I was not a fan of musicals because I was. I was a huge fan of Jesus Christ Superstar and right. Fiddler on the Roof. And and I in doing my research for this, I had to look and see there was a you know a huge number of musicals that, that came out at, the, at that time. Um, but this was such an oddball, weird thing, and I had no interest in it. So I did not go see it in the theaters. The first time I ever saw it was this weekend, period. And so there you have it. But wow. I'm first of all going to I think I'm going to shock Jonathan to death because <laughs> I'm going to say I like this movie. Oh, you did. <laughs> I like this movie. And I completely understand. You made a very serious point about saying you have to watch it at least twice. I didn't get a chance to do that, but I can't get it out of my head. And right. I'm thinking the more you see it, 
the more you can fall in with the campiness of it. And uh, yeah, you know, I redubbed it not a rock opera, but a rock soap opera, you know. Yeah, for sure. In, in, in a way, because because it's just so it's just so everything is over the top. Yeah. So much of it is poorly done, but so much of it is so well done that it kind of right. has this balance of conscious, I don't know. I, I'm not even quite sure how to qualify. I'm sure you're you're better qualified to say something, but I thought a lot of the filmmaking techniques were great. You know, that yeah. odd split screen thing with those two long shots where the bomb know, is being placed those... behind the juicy fruits in yeah. the stop. Yeah. And, yeah. And I thought and you that's follow some, all of that. Yeah. That, that that's some crazy. really clever stuff. Yeah. So so the camp, the camp nature of the performances actually i caught on fairly quickly and look yeah. any movie that starts off with a narration by rod serling <laughs> you you know you you have to give it some sort of uh some sort of uh, credit um so anyway so that's my my long-term history of it but what <laughs> is gotta be i mean how on earth why i mean even paul williams brought it up he said every time somebody tells told him that they loved the movie he said you must be from winnipeg and they'd say how did you know that <laughs> so what, know? Is, what is up with winnipeg and this movie okay. it's not just this movie though winnipeg sits in the middle of canada on a cold bare prairie the winter winds blow in it goes i was i took uh my better half there when it was minus 57 degrees celsius so <laughs> oh, it, it, it was colder there than it was on mars you know <laughs> yeah. so, so in the 70s even in the 60s and the 70s uh, culturally the whole city came together really tight because you weren't traveling you didn't have the internet so you weren't going to toronto or vancouver you're uh most exciting town south of you was Fargo, North Dakota. That was the big American experience that you had to go to. So uh, uh, culturally, everything developed so insularly that, uh, for instance, every pub had a stage. So if you were in a rock band, you could work 60 weeks a year, <laughs> more than enough, because there were 60 pubs that had full-on stages and that's why you had bands like the Guess Who and Backman Turner Overdrive, Chilliwack, like all of these amazing American, I mean American, big Canadian acts came out of Winnipeg at that time. So when you get to the 70s now, um, it was also the start of a FM radio station. I think it started around then called uh, City FM. And Brother Jake would uh, not have to answer to any corporate overlord. So he would just put on albums and he would play songs from Phantom of the Paradise on morning radio. And everybody goes, that sounds fantastic. I want to see that movie because the rock sounds, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the soundtrack itself. You separate it from the campy performances and everything and just listen to it on the album. Itself. <laughs> it, it's a phenomenal listen. It is like a it's like a Broadway show. So um, uh, another example is Super Tramp, Breakfast in America. Mm -hmm. So they were an English band. Nobody had heard of them. They uh, printed Breakfast in America. Uh, nobody in America, record stores didn't hold it there. They sent it to Canada, like 10,000 copies for all of Canada, uh, 5,000 of them in Winnipeg. All 5,000 sold out in a week. So, 
Yeah. So then, so then the record producer, the the distributors said, I don't know what's going on in Canada. So they just kept sending more, thinking all of Canada was into it. Winnipeg <laughs> was into it. So then Toronto just had all these super tramp albums piling up. So they were selling them for a dollar. And everybody went, what's this dollar super trap? And they bought it. And then they became a hit in Toronto. And then <laughs> like that across Canada, all from Winnipeg. And then super trap became a huge rock act around the world, basically because of wow. I know. So you think of that culturally, what goes on so that when a movie uh, that you, you're not even listening to reviews from other you're not reading the New Yorker to see what uh, Pauline Kael thinks about Phantom of the Opera. You're listening to morning radio. You're hearing that rock songs. You're going, and then your friends tell you, oh my God, it's got this thing and the lightning bolt and the lightning bolt and beef, uh, and, you know, and they're explaining to you. You're like, what the heck? So everybody went to go see this and they started going again and again because the music, surprisingly, written by Paul Williams, so catchy and it became uh like uh, almost earworms so i love this movie so much i tried to make the phantom costume for my halloween costume i was taking like, <laughs> and like plastic like paper mache to try make the 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 weird uh, mask that he had put on there yes. yeah i, I was oh, trying yeah. to make that mask and then i was trying to find where can i get a for a uh, for 12 year old, a leather one piece jumpsuit, <laughs> the tight black leather <laughs> thing. And then a cardboard box with lights that would light up for my vocoder uh, thing because he got, it, he got it pressed in the record press of his own music. The irony, oh, the irony. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, that's interesting because I think uh, Jesus Christ Superstar kind of, that was how they promoted the movie I think if I'm if I'm correct was with the album first to get people yeah. to behind That's the right. music yep. and then then they uh, released the film so it already had a following so it must there was a similar dynamic that happened there for Phantom of the Paradise that's that's absolutely absolutely fascinating I know I know and for me and I think there's still people you know who never left Winnipeg who still think oh yeah that was a big hit around the world but <laughs> yeah, when I moved sure. to, yeah when you moved to LA and you go, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, ring cultural similarities. Everybody's like, what the heck is Phantom of the Paradise? Have you heard of that? Yeah. You're a kid. You went to Phantom of the Paradise. You, you tried to make the outfit for Halloween. But didn't, didn't everybody do that? And apparently not. So, so yeah. I, and now, because of the internet and everything, uh, culturally, we're a little more uh, ubiquitous. So, so Winnipeg still has pockets of uh, things like that. They still have a lot of live performance venues and stuff, but it wasn't anything like it was pre, pre-travel, pre-internet. I, I will say that looking at the reviews on other places, like Rotten Tomatoes, it had no, it has an 86% approval. IMDB gives it seven, seven stars out of 10, their average recommendation. And I was shocked seeing this. I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I hate it because I didn't hate it. And this is the second time I saw it. I saw it many, many years ago. Oh, yeah. So this is the first time that I've seen it 30 years, maybe. <laughs> so it's, I did not, I thought it was, to me, like I said, I did not think it was a great movie. It was schlocky. But I will say I could not turn away. 
And, right. and it was again, I, I was like, what's going to happen next again? And I, I, like I said, it's been 30 years, so I didn't remember the, and I could not turn away from the screen. I kept wanting to see what would happen next in this thing. Because it's so, it, it every turn is like, oh, you didn't see that coming. It's logical. They're like, script-wise, <laughs> it, all, it all holds together, schlocky or not, or acting performances uh, uneven, shall we say? Some are uneven. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, every... Every uh, beat has a new surprise to it. And you're like, and this is Brian De Palma. This is one of his right. first. <laughs> That's what, it's amazing. Yeah. Major director. And I saw the interview with him and he talked about it. And he said the reason uh, it didn't do well anywhere else is because they didn't do E&O insurance, errors and emissions. So they were sued by Phantom of the Opera. Right. Uh, copyright. They were sued by Faust copyright they were <laughs> like just all these lawsuits came over so they just the studio just pulled the film except for winnipeg they let it run there for two years because again it was so isolated that your lawsuit isn't going to transpire international borders to try and get them to uh, cease and desist a movie playing to a town of 500,000 people but that but you said but running for two years is exactly how i saw it because watching this I could so see this as like a Rocky Horror type thing that gets repeat audiences again and again, just audience participation type stuff. Just yeah. fun, fun for an audience to like be in there, the that atmosphere together. Yeah, and and yeah, by the second year, everybody was singing along to a lot of the songs. They knew, uh, uh, you know, the plot line aside, the, the you you started looking for the details, right? Uh, of uh, of Beef's performance just before he's electrocuted, of who gets their head chopped off in the audience when we need a man sequence. Uh, you know, all of that uh, becomes this fantastic uh, joy to experience over and over again, because then it's your favorite parts. You know, I had a friend, his favorite part was the Juicy Fruits, the <laughs> band at the beginning, who won't get to open for the paradise. I need a new act, not the Juicy Fruits. You know, that sort of thing. So, he's like, what's wrong with the Juicy Fruits? They're a great band. So funny. Oh, what a, but I mean, such that is such an odd musical sequence. And we've got Archie Hahn, who's like one yes. of the great character actors of the 70s, playing one of these band members and doing all this weird, you know, pseudo-sexual physicality and shooting up himself <laughs> pretending to shoot himself up with a microphone and pulling out a knife it was like what on earth is this all about it was just so weird and then there's this net but at the 70s also in well my mind for every uh glam rock rock <laughs> itself was over the top already right yeah you did with bowie and uh, ziggy stardust uh, sequences all your uh uh what's the even tommy and the who right is like these were already over the top uh acts you know you didn't have def leopard in the spinning drum cage yet but that was coming you could see it a yeah. its profession so but i mean they're per they're performing like this this doo-wop song i mean it's like you know I, and that's the wrong term i'm not music very musically inclined but they're performing this like I, this whole other type of music and yet acting it out on stage in such a it was just so it was just so awesome. well seeing them i thought is that shana and then i i looked yeah isn't it funny it i did too 
Right, and it, it was they they were considered for this afterwards. When I read the notes afterwards in the movie, they had been considered, and De Palma didn't like them, so he yeah. got to... <laughs> they were too goofy. Right. So yeah, right. Yeah, Sean and I couldn't cut it to get into this movie, <laughs> and yet they played at Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, oh my god, oh my god. I, I will say, I was absolutely transfixed, and I'm not even kidding you this on Jessica Harper's performance. I yeah. thought she was amazing in this, and she seemed at times like she was in another movie, like acting, like she was acting for another movie. I thought, she, I thought she was really good in this movie. And she like stood out because everyone else was like, so campy. And she was like a serious, you know, taking yeah, things playing it real grounded in the reality right. that actually falling in love with Swan, like all <laughs> of it, and the tragedy at the end of recognizing Winslow when his mask is off, but he's burning to death. Because he's sold to Satan. Yeah, you know, when you see that on stage. I recognized her. I like I started looking her up and I said, that's right. I saw I I knew her from Love and Death, from like all the Steve Martin movies, you know, the pennies from heaven things. I thought she was great. You know where she ended up? She married one of the senior Fox executives who uh, as a teenager thought she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen when he saw Phantom of the Paradise. So that's why FX shows Phantom of the Paradise like two times a year. So Jessica <laughs> can keep her SAG healthcare. <laughs> I didn't realize it. Well, okay. I, all I'm thinking is I got to get her on the podcast. I got to get her. I got to contact her to get her on. to contact her. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if she took her husband's name. I forget. He was the... You know, he was up there uh, in Fox uh, 20th Century Television. So he was a senior executive pulling down six figures, the whole thing. And he would often introduce Phantom of the Paradise on FX and then bring Jessica out. And here's my oh, wife. Amazing. And it'd be like, oh, my God, <laughs> that's so fantastic. So, so great. So, you know, he's seen it and like, you know, watched it a bunch of times. Because his brother apparently was going to acting school with Jessica and says, oh, I can introduce you. I know her. She's in my... Oh, my God. Well, that I, I didn't read either. That's amazing. Well, I know. Such a small town. So... Uh, I, I, I saw something. I don't know if you read all the people who auditioned for this. No, <laughs> I hadn't heard. Who who were... Uh, <laughs> two people considered for her role. Sissy Spacek and Linda Ronstadt. Wow, right? And <laughs> Sissy Spacek didn't get it. But she was assistant uh, set decorator, right? Uh, her husband was the the set deck guy. Yeah. So she was talking to Brian De Palma all the time, hanging out. And then when he goes, oh, uh, who are we going to get for a young Loretta Lynn for Coal Miner's Daughter that I'm directing? Oh, hey, what about that set deck assistant? <laughs> like, I don't know. Is that Brian De Palma's thing just to get, like, people in the neighborhood to be in the <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, she met she met her husband Jack Fisk at AFI, and they actually worked on um, Eraserhead. Oh, yes, I think I think I think, I think I that's that. kind of where the origin of that relationship came from. And then Jack Fisk became you know went on with his career after getting yeah, yeah. Um, you know getting some attention uh, for that. So right. yeah, it is. It's so it's it's it is such a weird 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 and strange business, you know. Yeah, oh for sure. So uh, yeah, so this, uh, the other what was the other weird thing about this movie other than we all sang it? Oh, I know. 
in the third grade at talent contest, uh, we were going to uh, lip sync to a song from the album, right? And I think <laughs> we were going to do um, Somebody Super Like Me, the Beef Construction song. Yeah. But I wanted us to be like this total goth glam rock band. So get we're all in third grade, mind you. So I talked my friends into taking my sister's black lipstick and just giving us black eye holes, like skulls. And then I somehow talked my sister, because in my mind, the band was going to be called, because it was Death Records in the, in that was his Paul Williams record company. It's called Death Records. So right. we were going to be called Death Machine, like we signed with Death Records. So I had my sister take my little, <laughs> tiny little jean jacket and so on in red letters, Death. But she couldn't fit machine. So uh, for <laughs> next year and a half, I had a tiny jean jacket out in the small town of Manitoba with death written across the back of it. Like I'm some sort of gang member. Uh, like, oh my God. Mrs. Burek was just wanted to throw that jacket in the garbage, but she couldn't do anything. So yeah. So we lip synced to that song with Death Machine, and I had a death jean jacket on. In the third grade, think of oh wow, wow, that's fantastic. I know, but I think about how much this movie influenced me. Uh, and you know, Death Punk, too. They said they based their their style on on this movie, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. And we were in a punk band, too. And I, I suggested, hey man, we should do like a really fast cover of uh. You know, roll on thunder, sound on lightning today. The the end one that Paul William does, but do it really fast. What did you do? Roll on thunder. Roll on thunder. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. It <laughs> would have been awesome. Would have been awesome, right? Yes. Yeah. So I I don't I think we rehearsed it once and abandoned it, but you know. <laughs> but that well, was the thing. Winnipeg had so many bands. I everybody took music lessons. Everybody knew how to play. I I played drums. And I was in one band after another, either progressive rock or Moog synthesizer, and then into punk bands and stuff like that. And we played every weekend and we were terrible. <laughs> That's the thing about Winnipeg. There's so many places, to, there were so many places to play and uh, go live and make money as a musician. So when you saw this and you're like, oh my God, we could take this element and you know, Tease aside, the music, the bands, the different band styles and and the cross mixing, like you said, you know, it's like a doo-wop band with goth <laughs> overtones, like who thought that mesh would work? And here everybody in Winnipeg is going, say, I, that's not a bad idea. Can we get that to work? So, you know, it, it again, it's a, a magical mix of movie, the city itself, uh, the culture and the times. Well, well I, I mean, have just, a whole bunch of like trivia notes. We're gonna like, if you, oh, yeah. no, 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 you, no, you trivia notes. Go for it, because yeah, I, I, was, I know the trivia answers. I, 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 not questions. I just notes that I wrote down while researching this here too. Some of the things, like they said, originally Swan was called Spectre based on Phil Spectre. They yes. changed the name. <laughs> but, uh, right, Swan's. They couldn't. They wanted to use Swan Song Enterprises. Couldn't use it because of the Led Zeppelin. Led label. Zeppelin already had that as a right. trademark. Yeah. Uh, here's one funny Easter egg. They said on Phoenix's mirror after the concert is a magazine ad with the headline, "I'm a Harper's freak" because Phoenix was played by Jessica Harper. 
uh, let's see here. What else? John Voight was considered for Swan. <clears throat> Studio wanted Peter Boyle as Beef, but he was, you know, doing something else at the time. And I'm wondering yeah, if John Frankenstein, Frankenstein I think. Right, yeah. that's what I'm, that's what yeah, I'm wondering. Yeah, at the same time. Right. Uh, let's see. A novelization of the movie was done, which I can't even imagine the novelization of could come out of this movie. <laughs> no, but I, I actually bought it. And uh, we go. Yeah. <laughs> of course you did. Of course I did. And it, it was one of those that just read like word for word and described the scene, uh, scene for scene. So they didn't actually expand on it or anything. Basically, a guy just watched the movie and is like, a rock musician goes to door. He says this, this, and like, and then put that, put that artwork on it, and it sold tons. <laughs> it went and bought it six ninety five. Well, here's Who's one that I will relate to, and I'm sure you probably will at some point as well. They said because I told the story that in Return to Witch Mountain, they had assured him that something was safe, and you know when he was doing it, they said here William Finley, who played Winslow. Said in the pressing plan scene, they assured him that it would be totally safe for that, that it was fitted with foam and chocks put in the center to stop it from closing. So, of course, as the machine was so powerful, it crushed the chocks and kept going. And he got his head out in time. But the scream you heard in this movie was the real one that he was panicked with, you know, because of the time. Yeah, yeah. The crew members had to yank him out, right? Because right, his sleeve is supposed to be caught on the switch <laughs> that starts the record press. And he said, yeah, he couldn't get, the body couldn't move out. So somebody had to actually grab him and pull him out in time. It's amazing oh, to be like the producer. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, you, you, don't worry about it. Oh, you hear that. You, well, you know, Dean, you know this as well. You hear that so much. You know, that, you no, know, no, it's, it's completely safe. We got this all taken care of. But I mean, I read that anecdote and I just, I just, I cringed. I had to stop and I couldn't get it literally or figuratively out of my head. <laughs> that he would even consider sticking his head in that thing because i assumed that the close-up was was a prop and not yeah. the actual machine and and I, I certainly wouldn't have stuck my head in there i mean i just i, I just wouldn't i mean so that's such a sure, terrifying yeah. thing yeah i know but your stunt guys and your prop guys are sure you're of all sorts of things or yeah. you know one time i nearly got uh, stabbed to death on the x or on the lone gunman uh, the spinoff of the X-Files because uh, it was a scene where uh, the Tango episode and um, Zalika Robinson, who plays Eva Del Harlow, our nemesis in this sequence, uh, fantasy sequence, has a knife and she's supposed to stab me in the back in a dark alley on a Vancouver rainy night. Oh. And the stunt guy goes, oh, do you want back scallops? I go, what are those? Oh, it's a plastic back a scallop thing so that when you fall on the concrete it protects your back you know it's just kind of a thing and it was cold and it was wet and he went ah, you know what uh, yeah i will wear that sure and i strapped this thing on and then uh we've been doing sequences over and over with a knife that's you know sprang back and then i go uh do touch-ups with hair and makeup and i'm just off camera and i didn't hear uh Zuleika, we're going to give you the real knife that glints in the light oh so that we went to the glint, but it's the real knife. And she was, you know, distracted because her hair and makeup were being done. And it was just a close-up of the knife. But nobody told us what camera angle they were going. I wasn't listening. She wasn't quite listening. Oh so God. they yelled action. And I quickly jumped back into my position 
and she stabs her and it goes into the scallops and it doesn't spin back and she freaks out and lets go. But if I didn't have the scallops, it would have just inserted in my kidneys. But but luckily it stuck in between the two scallops of the uh, of the back brace. And that's about as close, like you said, you know, uh, accidents happen. You Everybody has to, you know, listen. But nobody thought, oh, I'm going to jump in and be in that scene because it, it didn't need me. It was just a close up of the night glinting. But I thought, oh, they're doing the scene again. I better get in there and nearly got myself killed. Oh, so, <laughs> well, I can't. I, I mine's not as scary as yours, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I I played a very fun character in, if you remember the uh, miniseries The Bastard in the, yes. the 70s with Andrew Stevens, um, amongst many other people. So I got to play the Marquis de, de Lafayette, who teaches Andrew Stevens how to fence. So we had actually had a fencing sequence. Oh, and I'd spent four days learning the routine, learning how to do everything properly. He'd spent his own time. We never actually got to rehearse together. So the first time he and I do this routine, we're, we're, it's like on set and we're, we don't even, we don't even do a rehearsal. They just said, let's shoot the rehearsal in case it works. And I thought, this is great. Absolutely cool. Perfect. So we both had our foils, blunt ended foils. And my, both of our characters had on what looked like protective padding that you would wear in a in a situation like this and because i was teaching him he was supposed to be tapping me with his with his sword yeah. and and you know adrenaline pumps it gets a little bit too crazy and boom he just he just once rammed it right through right into my chest right here it oh, went through God. the padding wow and and i thought okay, that's not supposed to happen. And of course we went ahead and finished the whole take because I thought I'm not going to call cut now. And we finished the whole scene, got it perfectly. They shot it with three cameras in one take. And then I said, I think I'm going to need first aid over here because I was bleeding. And oh, no. it turned out, it turned out the protective um, chest plate wasn't actually protective. It was made by the wardrobe department just to look good. It wasn't, it had, it had absolutely no, nothing of any density to it whatsoever. So that foil went right through and right in, right into my chest oh right my here. God. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It wasn't bad. It was not bad. Cause thank you. You know, he, he, he stopped, but at the moment it was just that sting and was like, okay, that could have been really bad. You know, it had, had it been somewhere else. And so many times, even as actors, we turn around and say, oh, no, I'll do it. Yeah, I want to do it. I got to do it. Right. And it. and you over you you don't think it through necessarily. But and man, just dip our toe into controversial, but Alec Baldwin unrest. Right. I mean, I don't know what happened. People died. Uh, somebody gave yeah. him a gun with a little real bullet in it. Uh, you know, who's responsible? That's a big thing for the courts. At the same time, you know, as an actor, you got a lot of things going on. You can't just go, oh, does this work? I don't know, you know, and then like check it and stuff like that. You, know, you got to be in a, you, you got to have the team around you to build that trust, right? So, but like on Phantom of the Paradise, you're told, oh no, it'll stop the chalk and this is foam rubber. And oh, by the way, the hydraulics are so powerful, it's going to kill Oh them. God, that's just so, it's just so it's just so, so terrifying scary. so terrifying Terrible. well I, I i just have to comment because i think that's the best the, the best random uh pull of a prop 
I've ever seen. But you happen to have a is this a squirt gun or a, well, I don't even know what that is, but but I love the fact that you own it and it was right there. <laughs> and and know that this is not my office. This is my better half. She's an accountant. I'm not sure why she has a water gun. I, uh, so that funny. was fantastic that was fantastic <laughs> but just to talk a little bit about the campiness of the movie because um you know i i, I had to obviously look up these dates to figure out the proximity of all these different movies and you've got jesus christ superstar which of course is not in that style whatsoever coming but out a year a year before who is canadian so yeah. oh yeah that, but then you've you got know. your rocky horror picture show that comes out in 75 and it very much played the camp in 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 a in a it, it seemed it seemed like a very conscious way right so i wondered has de palma ever discussed the nature of phantom of the paradise was he going for that or did he end up with that because sometimes you just can't tell if a movie has a questionable kind of tone to it whether or not that yeah, was yeah, the actual yeah. intention if he intended it to be campy or it just came off that way and okay so you know uh de palma uh made some good movies but there also there are some that you see uh that don't hold up well uh <laughs> i'm thinking of that but uh did he did, he did admission impossible didn't he i'm trying to think uh anyway there's one uh action movie big budget action movie and basically, there's a lot of sequences without the action that come across pretty <laughs> uh, cheesy, <laughs> as the case. So from the interviews I saw him uh, talk about it, I, I think he was trying to make a serious rock opera. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. And then these uh, camp elements came in, either through performance or by necessity necessity of editing right um like winslow trying to get into death records and they speed up the camera and put on funny yakety sax music or whatever yeah uh, like those elements seem to be uh, in my mind that the scene's taking too long so you speed it up and then post-production we'll just put in some funny music because you know post-production often has a different opinion of the movie you made than the movie you made that yeah. you thought you made, right? So um, uh, I'm thinking that he had a much more serious aspiration, particularly because of production design. And I mean, that final wedding sequence, swinging on a rope, all of that has a grandeur to it. Uh, geez, they're not, but it is, you know, epic in its um, uh, flow, and its production and camera work, like all of that in the final sequence, uh, clearly he wasn't just phoning this one in or hey, let's all have fun, make a rock opera. There was yeah. there was full on Phantom of the Opera, Faustian uh, gravitas that he was looking to get out of this thing. And from my perspective uh, and everybody in Winnipeg, it achieved it. That movie, if it was just written off as, oh, it can't be fun, no one would have kept going back. The fact that we all perceived it, an entire city, as being grounded in some sort of uh, epic emotional truth that 
resonated with a town of 500,000 people in the middle of an ice cold prairie uh, attest to the fact that he was trying to do something that connected with one group of people. <laughs> he did do Mission Impossible. I'm looking at it now. So, <clears throat> so many yeah. other good ones. I mean, raising his, his career, just so many great films. So many great films. But I think I'm, I'm thinking of that Mission Impossible where there are some uh, Tom Cruise moments, you know, where they're setting up for the next action sequence. And you're like, what? <laughs> this, movie, this part here? I'm not sure. So oh I'll have to go back because I, I can know I can. I remember seeing it in the theater and going and my eyebrows raising at a few moments for sure. Well, take the tie into this. You were just talking about uh, Rocky Horror. The tie in again, which I didn't even know existed. Jessica Harper was in the sequel to Rocky Horror which I didn't even realize was a movie. Shock right. treatment. Shock so, treatment. Yeah, she got yeah. two of these movies in. So. <laughs> yeah, I've never treatment. seen it. You've never seen Shock Treatment? I've never seen Shock Treatment. Oh, I, I know I must watch this. This yeah, must be future you know, forgotten films. <laughs> and it was really so self-conscious, trying to be so weird and uh, schlocky that it, it, it you didn't, you just went, eh, you're trying too hard. Yeah, See, I remember I, I saw it way back when and I thought the same thing. They're just they're working so hard to make it what they thought it should be that it was. Yeah, it failed. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's Rocky Horror and Phantom have what in common, I think, is uh, like Tim Curry and Susan. They are actually acting in the reality and they're putting all of their talents forward as much as they can regardless of their situation or what wardrobe gave them or, you know, the set that they're on, their, the performance that they're bringing is rooted in a talent that they are, they're not phoning it in. They're, you know, they're fully engaged. The Tim Curry's uh, um, Frankenberger, I mean, you look at that, if you put that in another movie, that character role in a different costume in a big budget horror movie, he's quite horrific. He's like a terrible, like for yeah. a horror show, that is kind of a thing. Yeah. Everything that's around it is ridiculous. And it's same with Phantom, right? Jessica Harper is really- That's exactly it, you're right. And even Swan to a degree, even Paul Williams, he is, you know, uh, trying to be the evil bad music producer, but his, his uh, scene where he's signing off to the devil in the mirror uh, in yes. the bathtub on his suicide, like about to do, commit suicide. I thought that kind of epic for this guy that, you know. I thought he was fantastic in the film. And I loved that scene. And he played one of the best stoned characters I've ever seen. Because he, he, you, you, he, he didn't overplay it. He right? underplayed it. And just and just, but the, the the all it was just really effective. And I and I I like Paul Williams as an actor, but I haven't seen a protracted performance um, like that from him before. You know, yeah. throughout throughout an entire film. And I just thought he was really good. You know, I bought yeah. it. I bought that completely. And um, and and because you know, there's there's so many moments in it that could have not worked if it if it had been if it had been played in a campy way because he he played it for real also and i thought i thought that was really it was outstanding yeah 
Yeah, and and it's 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 always the question. Well, whose movie is this? Who's the who's the lead in this thing? Because you focus so much on the Phantom for so long, but yeah. it really is Paul Williams' movie. Like he is, mm-hmm. he's driving that narrative. He's the emotional overtone, the marriage scene. Uh, you know, you can't die when I die on the rooftop with the Phantom who stabs himself. He stabs himself <laughs> when he sees Jessica Harper in bed with Squad and stabs himself. And he said, "You signed the contract. You don't die till I die." And the wound heals up. I mean, what the like? All of that is is just uh uh for my what what was that eight eight-year-old mind at that time that was like so incredible that was like incredible movie making is it still that big phenomenon in winnipeg now is it still yeah uh they in 2008 or 2010 they had a phantom reunion and they brought uh uh leech and they brought uh i don't think paul williams came but uh, archie han came and they did a panel and it sold out the original theater that it showed in the metropolitan which was the <laughs> glorious 1926 two-tiered vaudeville house with an extra wide 70 millimeter screen and uh sold that out it was uh i think a 1600 seat theater and mm. uh People still loved it. And people brought their album to get them to sign it. The whole thing. It was like incredible. <laughs> and if I ever <laughs> see Paul Williams at an airport or anything. <laughs> and because I know they're trying to make it into a Broadway show now, right? This is the thing. Oh, seriously? It, yeah. And and but they're I you know they're having trouble with where the act divide goes. And to my mind. The movie should start outside whatever theater is because it's the paradise. And then you got those greasy bouncers going, hey, you got tickets, you know, like <laughs> hassling the audience as they go in. And then probably have the phantom outside screaming, uh, you know, anyone else who tries dies. Like, you know, so you have the show start outside in 42nd Street or wherever theater you get Broadway. So that when you go in, you open with uh, beef, and we need a man and you probably exacerbate your opening of the paradise. Then the lightning bolt, he fries, burns to death. Then the curtains come down. Then you start <laughs> second act, which goes back in time to how, so how the, it, the goddess press, you know, and turned into the phantom. I, so, I think the Broadway show just found its director. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Paul Williams, if you're watching, okay. <laughs> So then third act goes away. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kills me because I the, the Phantom character. I know when I when I saw the the publicity stills or whatever the the images of that of that character fully formed is really a horrific thing with yeah. the with the silver teeth the metal teeth, but but I mean you know he just goes to jail in prison and they just pretty much say we're doing dental experiments and you're all volunteers and we're tearing all your teeth out and putting metal studs in for no apparent reason is i know they never follow up what the experiment was no no what what's it for it's the most ludicrous setup i've ever seen to try to get a characteristic into a character so he has all those metal teeth so it but it, it but the effect when he gets the mask on 
is so good. it's outstanding. I mean, it's outstanding. It's just it's just this. I just love his look when they told him about the teeth. By the way, just like you know, not not even like screaming or like you know yelling. Just that's all that happened. Oh my god! You know what? This is funny. This is the first time I ever questioned that. Like I never even thought about that in all the times I've watched it. It's like, (laughs) well, that's see, that's the difference between starting out as an impressionable, intelligent youth experiencing this art, and then you just ingest it, and it becomes a part of your your consciousness, and you don't question those things. You don't. You know, having just seen it day before yesterday, I went, I went, oh, are you kidding me? This is how. (laughs) How does he get the metal teeth? Well, he just goes to jail, and they. Tell him yeah, he's going through a dental experiment, and hey, there it is. But no one else had metal teeth in jail. Just, just him. <laughs> That's right, too. He was the yes, only one you know, for that experiment. Boy, okay, there's a hole in the plot that I never saw before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the beginning, all the beginning part is that doing all the things that you taught never to do as a writer. Just like everything was exposition. Like, oh, <laughs> remember that. Remember, this is the the reason why things are happening. Was that thrilling of all things? Yeah, right. basically, it's jammed in all of this, which again is problematic for a Broadway show, right? How you gonna got you? How are you jamming in all that exposition right off the top on a play? You wouldn't do that. You'd throw that in in the second act to yeah. backstory what you just the incredible, uh, you know, pyrotechnics <laughs> that you saw of. A, beef burning to death from a neon lightning bolt being thrown at him <laughs> that stays that's your broadway oh show. no that's that's the best imagery in the in the in the whole movie and i know they used that in the in the trailers and in the commercials and and i and i thought there's so, there was something about that in, that intrigued me but there was enough that didn't intrigue me that i just couldn't go see the movie <laughs> <laughs> but i could okay but now i'm telling you get the soundtrack and uh just play that in your car as you're driving around and you will uh fall in love and then you'll have to go see the movie again because i think that's exactly what happened when everybody when fifty thousand people bought the album and then you played that and you went wait i don't remember how that song fits in the movie so then you go back to see the movie (laughs) just to see where that song uh, you know what part did that lump in oh that's the love sequence oh yeah okay and then it's like oh this is really great use of music in a movie covering scenes that you know basically look like they're shot in a one night with like three cameras and you're out sort of thing so that, yeah and that was funny well watching i'm a huge paul williams fan huge huge and i was like as it was going like I kind of like this song. <laughs> yeah, right. And I don't know if that was one of the Easter eggs. I don't know if you saw that part too, when he was tinkering around with the Phantom's voice. <laughs> so he was like, and he got to his own voicing. He said, oh, perfect. You know? <laughs> I, I, I loved that. I thought, yes. oh, that's true. That's true vanity. You know, yeah. uh, you know, as as a deadly sin. <laughs> so, so, true. so you're happy you saw it now, Ike? Are you, are you? Yes, I am. Because I'll be honest with you, I never would have watched it. I never would have until Dean went on about it so much. And then I hear about this, this Winnipeg thing. It's like, it's like UFOs landed in Winnipeg. And, and, you know, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad everyone, you know, got out and needed to get out. But it's like this, this fascinating, isolated little area of the world that's, that's got these, these, these stories attached to it. And I just, I think that's, that's, I think it's incredible. I think it's incredible. Well, and I'm glad you do, because when I was in Sydney, 
I went on a Star Wars podcast that was quite popular. And I talked about this movie. Uh, I forget the Star Wars tie-in that I had, but but I talked about this movie. And then uh, Australian broadcast company, ABC, showed the movie because they listened to the podcast, I guess. And oh, they wow. showed the movie. <laughs> and then... And then I'm like, oh man, it's on just after I tell how what a coincidence. Are you, are you getting and royalties then, for every time it's shown because you, you're pushing? <laughs> yeah, because I've been going around the world <laughs> talking about this movie. And then everybody tweeted going, eh, must be a Winnipeg thing. Yeah. Like I'm like, oh watch, could you show it a second time, please? Just to air it again, just because it becomes because you 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 know, you do. You you're shocked by schlockiness uh, the first time around, but the second time around. That magically fizzles away, and you're just left with epic music, acting, uh, production design, story. It's like, you know, pulling the teeth and making them silver. I'm good. I am 100% on board. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, I will watch it again. I will watch it again because awesome. I, 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 I expected it to, to be out of my head. I was, I took notes to help myself remember what I wanted to talk about. And I thought, I don't need the notes. I remember everything. It's like, no. so when it, when it, when it gets, you know, so, you know, for anyone out there who has avoided this film or does not know, or has not seen it, you have got, you do, you, 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 you have movie, to yes. see it. If you're a cinephile in any way at all, you, you have to see this movie. It's yeah. Yeah. And buy the album and try to find that uh, paperback. Which is the exact movie told? Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm not pushing people that far, but that's okay. <laughs> I, and by the and as soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to reach out to Jessica Harper. I'm just. Uh, <laughs> oh, hey! Side note: Do you know who owns the original Phantom Bird prop helmet? I gotta hear this. No. Guillermo del Toro. Oh, wow, no, now that makes total part. sense. Yeah. <laughs> When he had that show at LACMA of all his toys and props and stuff like that, there was the original Phantom Mask. Wow. I'm like, oh, I hate this guy. I wanted that shit. <laughs> so bad. So, Man. yeah. So, talk about somebody. I mean, you see that guy's imagery. How is he for, not influenced by this? Uh, for for uh, Dean Hagwin's yeah. birthday, everyone knows what to get now. <laughs> yeah. A leather jumpsuit. <laughs> Bird mask. I'll take care of the cape and the voice box. So you don't have to go all out. I can't believe they don't make a Phantom of the Paradise Halloween outfit. That would be so awesome. Out of no one Paradise. knows what it is. That's why it only sells in Winnipeg. <laughs> and Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Dean, thank you again so much uh, for coming thank back. You. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> this oh was, this was great. I really enjoyed watching this movie again. Uh, much better than the first time. I'll say this because I, I, I just let it take me this time. <laughs> so. That's right. That's right. Reserve your judgment, people. Enjoy <laughs> moving <laughs> But again, this this has been Pop Culture Retro, our Forgotten Films. I'm Jonathan Rosen with Ike Eisenman. And again, special thanks to Dean Hagland. Thanks, guys. Please subscribe. <laughs> Dean, thanks again so much. Oh, man, this was awesome. Yes. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was really funny. And I can't believe I just pull a gun. That <laughs> <laughs> was, was like, wait a minute. How did you know we were going to be set up for that? That that was that was outstanding. He's a professional. I have a whole shelf of props. I could have pulled anything. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so thank you again. Right, Let's go with this on, and I'll send this. To, I'll send you the link again, as always. But thank you, thank you again. Really, uh, my pleasure, you. guys. If you think of any, well, I, you know, that's the only last movie I'm, I'm deeply involved in. I, guess. <laughs> I think I think Dean Haglund has become a recurring guest now. <laughs> so yeah, right. we'll, yeah, we'll come up with an excuse. I, I mean, yeah. right. heck, just chatting with you is a blast. So there yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the next guest that drops out, give me a call. Alrighty, <laughs> thank you. All take right, care, take guys. care, man. You bet. Right. This has been Pop Culture Retro. I'm Jonathan Rosen with Ike Eisenman, and again, please subscribe thank you for listening to pop culture retro where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast 